Okay, welcome everybody. I think we'll start now. There might still be a few people trickling in. I think we've gone live. We are live. So um, welcome everybody, whether you're here in person or online. Uh, my name is Michael Mason. I'm the director of the Middle East Centre here at LSE. Um, this event that you are attending is here to launch uh, Leila Binyao's latest book, War Torn, The Unmaking of Syria, 2011 to 2021, published by Hearst. In front of you, you should have a, a leaflet from Hearst if you want to buy the book, giving, I, I hope, a discount. Is it, is it offering a discount? Yes? I don't know how much, but I very much recommend the book. Um, this is the first uh, sort of hybrid kind of in-person online event we've done in the Middle East Centre. Uh, um, so I hope this, this, this goes uh, smoothly. Um, what I will do, I will introduce uh, both our speaker here and our, our discussant colleague, online. Um, before that, just to let you know, um, the COVID sort of uh, uh, situation at LSE is that you're not obliged to wear a mask as nobody is. So I didn't need to say that, did I? Yeah. Um, the um, running order of the proceedings is that um, Leila will speak for about uh, 20 minutes. Then my colleague, well, I'll introduce both in a minute, uh, uh, Dean Sharp, will um, have some questions and we'll have a discussion and it, it, with him serving as discussant, bringing up various issues and questions regarding the book. And then we'll welcome speakers. Speakers uh, will be welcomed either here, of course, in the room uh, uh, or online. And I'll try and navigate between the two environments in terms of questions. So, uh, yes, welcome. Welcome to this event. Um, the, uh, this sort of event is something that we've done regularly in the past, of course. We're, we're very well known for this, the Middle East Centre. Outside, there's a whole carousel of some free Middle East Centre publications you're welcome to take away. We have more upstairs if, you, if you're interested. Uh, so welcome. And I think, I just want to say very quickly that, you know, this sort of event where we have this wonderful sort of free open space discussing ideas is a really precious space. Uh, it's really something that perhaps we've taken for granted in the past, given that um, we're dealing with a situation in the world where, where universities and hospitals are being bombed at the moment. And, and we have fellow Europeans dying to, to kind of uh, protect the sorts of freedoms that we enjoy daily. So this sort of thing, I think this sort of uh, open space or free exchange of ideas is something which is really precious to us as a centre and as a school. And I think uh, the current conflict in Ukraine might well feature in the discussion uh, 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 of the book, given some of the parallels being drawn between, for example, what's happening in Mariupol and, and Aleppo from the Syrian conflict. Well, so to move on, let me introduce our, our guest, so our guest is uh, Professor Leila Vignal. She's Professor of Geography at the École Normale Supérieure, Paris. Uh, she's, uh, so welcome fellow geographer. There's at least four geographers, either online or in the room. But this is a meeting in which more than geographers are welcome, of course. Um, Leila is the editor of the Transnational Middle East, People, Places, Borders. Uh, her work specializes in cities, globalization, and the transnational dynamics in the Middle East. Since uh, 2011, she studied the transformations of Syria and its society throughout the war, hence the book which we're uh, discussing, presenting on uh, uh, tonight. Um, serving as discussant, 
a fellow geographer, you can probably, I hope, see online behind me, uh, Dr. Dean Sharp. Uh, he's an LSE Fellow in Human Geography at the Department of Geography and Environment here at LSE. He's an urban geographer uh, whose research focuses on the political economy of urbanization in the Middle East. He's the co-editor of Beyond the Square, Urbanism and the Arab Uprisings 2016 and Open Gaza, uh, um, University of Cairo Press currently in print. When did that come out, Dean? Was that last year? Last year, yeah. Yeah, thank yeah. you. I lose sense of time at the moment, yeah. He's currently working on an edited volume on the spatial dynamics of the conflict in Syria uh, with Nasser Abbat, provisionally entitled Reconstruction as Violence, the Case of Syria. Okay, so welcome everybody. Um, the format, as I said, we will have uh, 20 minutes, about 20 minutes, uh, later for you to discuss the book, and then we'll go to uh, Dean and then open up for questions. So thank you, over to you. Welcome to LSE. Thank you very much, uh, Michael, for these uh, introducing words. And thank you for reminding us, you know, the chance we have to enjoy this uh, liberty, this freedom of uh, thinking and discussing. And let's feel in solidarity with people in Ukraine, in Russia, uh, for our colleagues in Russia and uh, in Syria, of course, and elsewhere in the world. Um, so I would like to start with thanking the uh, Middle East Center to invite me to present this book, War Torn, The Unmaking of Syria, here in front of such a distinguished audience in person and online. And um, I started to think about this book when I was a fellow uh, of the Refugee Studies Center of the University of Oxford, but I wrote it when I was back in France, defying both Brexit and COVID. And tonight I am really happy to be able to find my way back here again, over and beyond those two evils. So Dean is not uh, as lucky, unfortunately. Thank you, Dean, for accepting to be the discussant of the book, even remotely from home. Thank you, Michael, for being the chair of this discussion. And thank you, Nadine, for the wonderful organization. But let's go back to Syria. Uh, this, to this talk takes place, sadly, a few days after what marks the entry into the 12th year since the, the start of the uprising and the descent into conflict. If the levels, so I'm going to share my screen. I'm sorry, excuse me, I'm, I'm interrupting. Two minutes, this is presentation. But I've got a few slides to, to show you. So um, if the levels of open violence are much less than, when, than what they used to be, we are very far from what can be called peace. In the media with COVID and the Russian invasion of Ukraine, Syria attracts less attention, obviously. Uh, but it has been more generally the case over the last few years, as the Assad regime, with the support of its allies, uh, Russia and Iran, managed to, managed to gain back control of more than two-thirds of Syria's territory and of the population that has remained in these areas. Seen from very, 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 very far, it could seem that the conflict is at an end. But this is obviously far from being the case. Why so? 
It is not only because there is still political and military violence in Syria, and there is. It is not only because the country is still politically and socially fragmented, and it is, with entire regions that are un uh, under the control of different internal political and military actors, but also of foreign forces such as Turkey uh, in the north of the country. Syria is also far from being at peace because there is no process leading towards what the sociologist um, John Galtung defined in 1969 as a positive peace. So Galtung uh, distinguished between positive and negative peace. To him, negative peace is defined by the absence of violence, whereas positive peace is a desirable peace, and a desirable peace is the result of a dynamic social process. So obviously, this is nowhere to be seen in Syria. First and foremost, as there has never been any desire nor interest from the Assad regime to take part in such a process. As a result, the path towards an inclusive settlement, such as, for instance, uh, that which is entrained in the uh, UN Security Council Resolution 2054, uh, voted in 2015, appears to be in a deadlock a deadlock that the Assad regime tries to unlock, not through engaging in negotiation and dialogue, but through developing an aggressive campaign for normalization. So the Syrian conflict in this regard is typical of the dynamics of internal conflicts, internal conflicts being the majority of conflicts in the 21st century, although Ukraine, of course, reminds us that interstate interstate conflicts still exist. So what is specific to internal conflicts? Many things, of course, but one of them with major implications is that such conflicts de facto uh, bypass international structures, processes, and international humanitarian law. There are therefore events which are prone to unaccountability, extreme levels of violence, war crimes. International conflicts are generally long and very destructive as they can be ignored by the kinds of internationally, internationally supported processes that could help to build peace. And Syria exemplifies these aspects. First, it is very long. It is now, as I said, 11 years since the first demonstrations took place in the streets of uh, Syria, first in the southern city of Dera, immediately met by a very harsh repression, and peace is nowhere to be seen. Second, the price paid by the population is massive. First, in terms of loss of lives, with half a million deaths, although no one knows exactly what the real number is. Second, Syria still holds the sad world record of the country producing the highest numbers of refugees, so uh, it's 8 million people according to my estimates, and of internationally, internally uh, displaced people, around 6 million people, which represents therefore a total of 40 million people forcibly displaced uh, in Syria, a number um, which represents much more, much more than half of the 2011 population that stood at about 21 million inhabitants. So this means that the social ties that link people and keep the social fabric together have been extensively severed. 
Third, the destruction of the built and material environment, I mean the housing, the infrastructure, the economic capacities is extensive, although with important differences from one region to another, for instance, between the coastal areas that is relatively preserved and areas such as the Huta of Damascus that is extensively destroyed, or even um, differences within a single city, such as between the Eastern and Western uh, neighborhoods of Aleppo. And this is a map that shows you the difference between the Eastern uh, areas of uh, Aleppo that are massively destroyed and uh, the Western uh, neighborhoods of Aleppo uh, that are um, uh, sort of, uh, of, of, of intact. The price uh, paid by the population translate also into poverty as the level of impoverishment is massive. As you may know, the UN estimates that more than 85% of the population lives under uh, the poverty line. So in this book, I try to spell out a dimension of the war that is generally under-researched with regard to the Syrian conflict in particular, but also with regard to conflicts in general, at least uh, under-researched by social scientists, among which I place myself as a geographer. So this question is, what does war do to a country, to its society, to its territory? As important as it is, this question is generally addressed by historians when the dust of the war has settled. Why is this question? I am a human geographer, and as a human geographer, I analyze space as a product of social dynamics. And war is indeed uh, an important uh, process of social change, although a very destructive one. So I have worked in Syria since the mid nineties, looking at the transformations of cities and urban societies in times of economic opening. And I witnessed the changes and the continuities between the reigns of Assad father and Assad son. Although I could not foresee, of course, the nightmare that would soon uh, engulf Syria, uh, I said to address this question, what war does to uh, a country and its society, or at least aspect of it in this book. The fundamental aspect of my analysis is that uh, Syria as we knew it does not exist anymore. And I explore this, this change at different geographical uh, scales and linking different aspects of it. I explore changes in the built environment with an important focus on destruction, but also I, I work on the processes of dispossession that have been taking place in Syria, in particular with regard to housing and property rights. I look at changes in the social fabric through the deep transformation of settlement patterns provoked by the massive displacements of population in and out of Syria. I look at changes in the economics of the country, impoverished and caught into an economy of survival that goes hand in hand with a booming economy of war. In this regard, it seems to me crucial to assess the structural and possibly enduring features resulting from large-scale destructions and displacement, which have been at play in the territorial and economic fabric of Syria and its society during the last decade. So let me, let me go back, if I may, to the genealogy of the book, which you will find reflected uh, in the different chapter of, of the book. 
Perhaps because of my uh, previous knowledge of the country and of its geographical and social diversity, when the uprising started, I was immediately sensitive to its territorial dimension, a revolution widespread across the Syrian territory, as well as to the spatial dynamics of the repression, aiming at fragmenting this national momentum in order to prevent its coalescence. The, combi the combination of this territorial reach of the uprising on the one hand and of the strategy of repression on the other soon led to the territorial fragmentation of the revolutionary movement. Further, with the militarization of the opposition, with the breaking up of the country into multiple local territories, and we all remember the myriads of maps showing the areas of territorial control of the, of the different actors of the conflict, such as these, for instance. So with the, this process, we witnessed uh, the emergence of local experiments of alternative governance in those territories and the development of competing legitimacies. But soon it appeared to me as the conflict developed that analyzing how the war was socially and specially transforming the country was critical to understanding the political dynamics of the conflict as well. It soon appeared to me uh, that such level of destruction that we could see in Syria, um, and indeed, of course, such levels of subsequent displacement could not be analyzed as a mere collateral damage of political violence, but that they were indeed at the center of the strategy of the Assad regime. Indeed, my work on urban destruction shows that what was important to look at was not so much what was being destroyed and a full assessment of destruction in Syria is completely out of reach, but how it was being destroyed. In the book, I show in great detail how multifaceted tactics of destructions were carried out by the Assad regime and how destructions served different purposes for its own benefit. So I offer a typology of uh, these tactics from scorched earth tactics that allowed the regime to regain control of neighborhoods and cities to large scale bombardment of the residential fabric that spread terror among the population and forced it to flee. I also show how operations of raising to the ground of entire informal neighborhoods were carried out and displayed as collective punishment, but with an obvious collateral benefit, which was to clear valuable urban ground and to confiscate it from unwanted population groups. So the geography of destruction is quite specific. It corresponds to a large extent to a political map of sorts, the map of the opposition held areas at all geographical scales and levels. And the map of Aleppo I already showed you renders this very clearly. Hence, in the, in the book, I explore the spatial distribution of destructions while highlighting the linear relation, relationship between mass destruction, human, physical, economic, and mass displacement. My take is that destruction and displacement are a form of political violence, but also a weapon, a military strategy, and a form of repression in this war, uh, largely used by the Assad regime to ensure its survival. 
And um, so just to develop a bit this point of survival, this um, uh, multifaceted economy of destruction has ensured the survival of the regime at the cost of the obliteration of the country, obviously, at the cost of the obliteration of the state and of the population with political and analytical implications that go beyond Syria and Syrians, that goes to neighboring countries, Lebanon, Turkey, Jordan, to the wider Middle East, and even to Europe, in particular through the plight of refugees. But at the end of the day, the Assad regime uh, may preside over a pile of ruins, but uh, at least it presides. Another idea that I try to pursue in the book is the fact that if war is a pro powerful process of human and material destruction, it is also a powerful process of spatial, social, and economic reconfiguration. This relates, of course, to the fact that the human geography of the country has profoundly changed and that it is now shaped by destruction and the complete transformation of the patterns of human settlement as well as, as of the economy. However, one of the aspects I develop in the book is that war does not stop at the border, changes do not stop at the border, but affect the entirety of the Middle East at different geographical scales and in different uh, ways. For instance, the borderlands of Syria are deeply transformed within the country, of course, but as well in the neighboring countries that um, under the effect of the economy of war and the presence of refugees in these countries. The regional economy has also been transformed by the breaking of former trade routes that previously crossed Syria and uh, by the subsequent breaking of economic networks and ties. The regional economy is also transformed by Syrian investments that are redeployed in neighboring countries. To give a last example of this transformation, I have conceptualized the deployment of what I call a transnational Syria. Uh, with this, I try to encapsulate, to encapsulate the formation of a Syrian society outside Syria, which functions as a diaspora of refugees. This Syria outside Syria is established in many places across the region. Uh, those places in which Syrian activity concentrates form, uh, are, 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 are to be found in the informal camps of the Beka Valley, in the suburban city of 6th of, of October in Cairo, in the neighborhoods of Gaziantep in Turkey, etc., etc., which have become uh, proper little Syrias. So to me, it is a transnational society, a transnational Syria, as these communities and places are connected with each other by many ties, as well as they are connected with communities and places within Syria. And these ties are vital to ensure the survival of people and families within Syria, as they facilitate, for instance, the transfer of remittances. Finally, and Dean, you may want to discuss this as well, uh, I show how dispossession is part of the Syria that has emerged from more than 10 years of conflict. So the spectrum of wartime dispossession is very wide indeed. It is of obviously created by war tactics, destruction led to the loss of urban fabric and therefore of housing, economics, resources, etc. However, the sale of belongings and assets under constraint, 
or uh, out of dire financial needs. Uh, the secondary occupation of houses or the confiscations of houses are also part of this process of dispossession. Secondly, the war uh, led to a sharp erosion of housing and property rights through different mechanisms on which I can expand in the Q&A questions if you are interested, but that result in the loss of uh, tenure security for uh, countless Syrians. Finally, the mechanisms of such dispossession operate through what I have called wartime reconstruction. Uh, by this, I mean a set of administrative and legislative de decisions that led, that, that led to the transformation of the urban land through new, new legal instruments on the one hand and regime-led reconstruction projects on the other. And uh, these affect mostly populations living in areas formerly had, held by the opposition and that happen to be also informal uh, neighborhoods. So in Syria's uh, main cities, these processes of dispossession have transformed urban land in two ways, in two main ways. First, uh, informal neighborhoods were cleared of large swaths of buildings and emptied of their populations through wartime large-scale bombardments or targeted operations of raising to the ground, I mentioned them. But second, urban legislations crafted during the war was used to unlock access to this valuable urban land, facilitating expropriation and, own, and facilitating as well ownership transfers that will likely benefit the private economic players close to the regime. In these areas, uh, reconstruction projects, if of course they ever see the light as uh, financial means are dire, uh, those reconstruction projects will um, uh, erase these neighborhoods a kind of second time, this time not through bombardment, but through regime-led reconstructions project. And so this map shows the location of such projects in uh, Greater Damascus. So just the last point, um, the analysis that I offer in this book is of course extremely complicated to elaborate since the country has been closed to researchers and is a very dangerous place um, where uh, research cannot be uh, carried out uh, in the manner that we do research in a peaceful environment. So in order to pursue my work, I have uh, set up a methodology to sort of access Syria from afar uh, remotely. So my method involves a combination of three types of sources. Um, secondary sources, such as reports, surveys, data, um, and this includes sources that have been produced by Syrians themselves in Syria. I use also primary uh, visual sources, and in particular satellite imagery. And finally, uh, I worked uh, extensively with Syrian refugees especially in the Middle East and in particular in Beirut, who helped me through the year to document inside Syria through their, you know, telling me their experience uh, in Syria when they were still in Syria, who helped me to connect with 
inside Syria through their own uh, networks and relations uh, uh, connections inside Syria. Um, and uh, working with those uh, Syrians uh, in the region helped me to uh, conceptualize and to see the, uh, the emergence of this uh, transnational Syria that uh, I, I, I talked about. So this is um, briefly what the book is about. Um, thank you very much for your attention and I'm happy to, and to, to discuss with you, Dean, and to answer your, 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 the question you may have. Thank you very much, Leila. That was perfect timing as well. So um, thank you. That was a very rich, insightful summary of the arguments in the book. Um, and um, I'll just... Um, I'm sure we're coming on to discussion, just really interested in this notion of this, this, this the regime of wartime reconstruction, uh, sorry, post-war reconstruction, having its own kind of dynamics of violence and dispossession, um, which is something that is less visible, of course, than the, than the, than the uh, sorts of sort of visible destruction and bombardment that we are exposed to in the media. Um, so just to remind everybody, the format um, is, I will now, will now pass on to my colleague, Dean Sharp, Dr. Dean Sharp, who, um, who have uh, various questions, I hope, of Leila and the book, and that's gonna take about half an hour. Um, then we'll go to questions after that, okay? And questions from the, the floor, so you can perhaps start to think about any questions you might want to ask. We also, I can see we have over 40 people online. So if you're online and you want to, thinking about questions, uh, please enter your questions in the uh, question and answer box in the bottom right hand of your Zoom page, and we'll deal with questions uh, from both sources. But for the moment, we will now uh, proceed to the discussion part of the uh, presentation. So over to you, Dean. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much, Leila, for sharing your work with us and um, really looking forward to discussing some of the, the textures and details in, in the book. Um, you know, it's wonderful that we're all a, a little, uh, Cluster of geographers. I'm not. I'm not sure what the collective uh, uh, for, for geographers is, but it's wonderful to be amongst uh, uh, and and have this deeply geographical book, but which of course is open to a broader audience than than just our disciplinary colleagues. Um, as Michael, you know, introduced uh, my own work as well. You know, I'm very much focused uh, as well on socio-spatial processes in in relation to conflict. And I just actually wanted to start off on uh, this point, a very basic one for, for geographers, uh, um, but may not necessarily be familiar to those who are outside of the discipline. Um, and to, because in the, the first chapter, you do lay out, for instance, very clearly how urbanization, uh, this process itself has been very key to the transformation of Syrian society and how in that, uh, that type of social change was very uh, strongly related then to the revolt that happened. Um, that's one part of the question. And, and secondly, you know, I do think people will be very familiar with, of course, Tahrir Square and the revolts that happened in the uh, public squares of metropolises around the region. But um, if you could explain uh, and unpack a bit more how the urban context took a central role in the Syrian revolt? So um, this is a 
this is a very wide um, question that you know, for those of you who are interested, you can also relate to yeah, this first chapter um, of, uh, of the book. Um, so um, one of the, so in the Syrian context, um, but as well, you know, in the context of the Arab Spring in general, there has been a lot of um, thinking and writing and publishing about the causes of those um, revolutions and um, and uh, and revolts. Um, what I um, do in in this first in the first chapter of of the book as a geographer is that you know so I. I am sensitive to the urban dimension of, of, of the revolt and I try to understand it. And so there is a, an obvious point, but that needs to be made is that uh, contrary to you know, the, um, the perception of um, you know, a general audience that is not very well uh, versed into the Arab world or developing world in general, uh, it is a very urbanized um, world. It's very urban, it's, it's societies that are highly urbanized. And so the fact, in a way it's a bit tautological, but the fact that uh, uh, the, the Arab Springs uh, revels uh, took place in cities reflect this very important urbanization of Middle Eastern societies. And this is a process that um, uh, is quite recent, uh, that took place over the last 40 years, uh, this uh, um, uh, uh, growth of urbanization due to the combination of uh, rural to urban uh, migration uh, in the 60s, 70s, and then linked to uh, natural growth. So those societies have changed enormously in a very short span of time, becoming urban societies. And what I try to uh, reflect on uh, this, uh, and especially in this chapter, is that um, it has uh, effects on uh, social change, and that social change also happens through urbanization. So I, I, I draw on uh, the work of demographers such as uh, Emmanuel Todd and Youssef Courbage, who shows that uh, historically uh, you can trace um, social change through the combination of demographic change and um, the uh, demographic transition, if you want. Uh, so the uh, transformation of uh, the family size of uh, several child, uh, children to a model that uh, tends to be two to three children uh, per, per family that changes completely the dynamics uh, of the family and of patriarchy. Um, and they show that the combination of demographic change, a demographic transition and of education is historically from the 17th century uh, in Europe to maybe um, um, Middle East countries uh, at the beginning of the 21st century, um, a driver of social change because the whole relation of individual, it, it, it unlocks so a society of individuals more than a society uh, of you know communals and communities etc so uh, what i try to show uh, in this chapter is that urbanization is a kind of accelerator 
of this social change because in the urban environment that is now uh, the majority of the environment in which people live in the Middle East, um, trajectories of individualization uh, are um, accelerated, um, favored. Um, and um, as well as, of course, you know, another type of connectivity, social networks, links between people uh, that happens uh, within the, the urban um, fabric. Um, so I try to add on this debate on causes, you know, to in, in, in putting this kind of long-term reflection on social change and showing that urbanization uh, is a process that transform um, the society um, and uh, uh, and um, and and has also a political effect if you if you want. Um, uh, and in Syria, you know, and also, so of course, cities, we have seen that everywhere in the Middle East where um, uprising uh, took place have been uh, also the uh, places where demonstrations coalesced, where people gathered to express uh, discontent and, um, and, and, and express claims. Um, and in Syria, what is really interesting uh, is to see how the regime uh, those movements happened, so those processes happened, and uh, the regime had uh, immediately a strategy of fragmenting, of trying to intervene, not to allow these processes of coalescence, of getting together into the cities. So at different scales, at the scale really of the cities, and you can see, uh, I developed that in the book, um, how uh, access to certain areas of the cities were sealed, etc., protected, how um, uh, demonstrators tried to circumvent that as well, but also at the, at the, at the national level, how uh, the strategy of repression really aimed at um, um, making it impossible for uh, people to communicate from and to and to get together from one place uh, to another. So strategies that aimed at breaking uh, the territorial uh, unity of the uprising into uh, many places. And one of the um, one of the means that people found to circumvent it, I don't know if you remember for those of you who followed the, the, the demonstration in 2011, it was that cities, that the, the chance uh, in, in, in demonstration in one city would uh, refer to events in another city. And so in Dara, they would say, Homs, we are with you. In Homs, they would say, um, uh, another Hama, we are with you, etc. So um, I don't know if I've covered everything, but. <laughs> well, no, I think it gives a very good sense. It gives a very good sense of the of connectivity and disconnectivity that were that were going on in, in the spatial manifestations of that that revolt. But building on on that last point of the the fragmentation um, that was pursued, uh, certainly the unmaking of Syria, as the subtitle of, of your book refers to, has been the the absolute decimation of the urban fabric that you detail. Um, quite extensively uh, and notably you know uh, and I think it's worth emphasizing this point that you you make clear in the book that this was an urban destruction 
that was uh, very much away from the front lines of actual conflict, that this wasn't the wanton destruction of, of war, it was a deliberate and systematic destruction of an urban uh, fabric. And as I say, I do think it is um, worth just emphasizing this point and, and underlining it. So I was wondering if you could just further remark on the way in which the urban context was targeted like this and why? So uh, actually, I, I can also show you um, other, other maps because in, in my book, you know, as a geographer, <laughs> I, I, I offer civil civil maps. So um, I I try to offer a typology, as I, as I said, of uh, of urban destruction. So in conflicts, of course, there is destruction and there is displacement, etc. But um, generally, uh, destruction is linked to the violence, to the military violence. And it is more and less confined when it is in urban environment, which is more and more the case in internal conflicts, as I um, mentioned in, in my introductory uh, presentation. Uh, it's generally so a kind of frontline destruction um, you know, where around the, 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 the area where um, uh, different uh, groups um, uh, get into uh, going to confrontation. So what uh, working and studying, you know, from satellite imagery and different reports on the destruction on in many cities of, uh, of Syria, uh, what uh, is extremely noticeable is that uh, destruction does not obey to this kind of frontline uh, destruction. It exists, of course. And uh, if you look at, um, um, you know, the map of Aleppo that, uh, that I showed you uh, earlier, uh, of course, you can see that um, around uh, the uh, front line, I mean, the, 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 the dividing line between Eastern and Western Aleppo, there is a concentration of destruction. Uh, this is, uh, oh yes, I have to, I, 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 I was puzzled. Yeah. I thought, what happens? Why am I see that? Um, so how do I do that? Share, Share. sorry. Nope. So, oh. excuse me, I'm going back to Aleppo. Uh, so you, you can see very clearly that uh, there is a higher, there is a high level of disruption next near uh, the front line. But what you can see also is this kind of carpet-like uh, destruction um, uh, in in the residential fabric, uh, in the in the urban fabric, and this is uh, this is a destruction that has nothing to do with uh, military uh, confrontation and it's um, a conf uh, a destruction so that has been carried out through aerial bombardment mainly also with uh, artillery and sometimes scuds that have been uh, uh, sent uh, over to, to, to Eastern Aleppo. But so it's a, it's a destruction that specifically aims uh, at the uh, civilian uh, fabric of, uh, of the city. And you can see this um, um, uh, pattern, uh, this carpet-like uh, destruction in many um, cities or neighborhoods uh, of, uh, of, of Syria. And they correspond, as I, as, I, as I mentioned in my presentation, to areas that uh, were held by, uh, the, by the opposition. So it's a strategy that can be understood, you know, um, 
so in Aleppo, it's uh, it's uh, clearly uh, a strategy of this large-scale bombardment, a strategy of fear, if you want, a tactic of fear of collective punishment. Uh, in other cities, uh, this strategy of bombardment uh, has preceded uh, the uh, retaking of uh, the city. So it's kind of scorchers tactic. You bomb an area, you bomb a, a city, and then you can enter with uh, with foot soldier if you want when the when the when the city is uh, completely uh, destroyed. So uh, this typology, front line destruction, scorch earth, earth tactics to retake an area that is uh, taken by um, that is occupied by um, uh, controlled by by uh, the enemy, and uh, large scale bombardments that aim at uh, the population with a clear tactic of fear. Maybe also it's a kind of warning for other places in Syria uh, where people may think of uh, maybe um, uh, joining the opposition at large. Um, and um, um, uh, so there, is, there was another point that I wanted to mention and suddenly it escapes me. Um, yeah, so um, I'm not going. I, I, it will. It will come back. Uh, it will come back to me. Um, um, what I want to to mention is that you know there is a, a clear superimposition of political maps and um, and um, destruction maps, as you can see clearly in uh, in Aleppo. And so, as I said, this is reproduced in many. Uh, cities in, in Syria, but uh, there is another element, uh, which is that most of the urban fabric that has been destroyed in Syria uh, is informal, um, uh, an informal urban fabric. An informal, it means illegal, that has an illegal status, either because there are no uh, property deeds that supports uh, the, 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 the built environment, or because uh, it's um, uh, neighborhoods that infringe on uh, you know, urban planning uh, regulation, etc. But actually in Syrian cities, uh, the informal um, city was extremely important. For instance, in Deir Zor, in Araka, it was 50% of the city that was illegal. In Damascus, 40%, 45% in Aleppo. So um, half of, the, of, of Syria's cities, if you want, uh, were um, uh, formed by uh, illegal neighborhoods. And um, what is interesting to see is that, um, especially also in connection with reconstruction uh, is that um, uh, it is mostly uh, those areas that have been uh, destroyed. Of course, because they sheltered opposition groups, um, whereas um, the, the centers of cities, depends of the places, but were mostly uh, kept in, under the control of, uh, of, uh, of the regime. But um, also um, those neighborhoods, illegal neighborhoods have been sometimes targeted and it's a kind of force type, you know, in my typology, by uh, raising to the ground operations. Um, by this, I mean really neighborhoods that are uh, wiped out 
in over one week, two weeks, with um, um, you know uh, explosions and uh, trucks, etc. So they, the 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 army and uh, engineers, etc., come in, destroy the, the neighborhood. It is generally so. I've researched um, uh, example, different examples of this kind of uh, raising to the ground operations, and so generally they are justified publicly either uh, for military reasons, saying there is uh, there are opposition fighters in those areas, uh, we punish you because you are protecting opposition groups, etc. Or sometimes um, uh, they are justified by uh, urban regulation. So it seems a bit weird that you know in 2012, 2013, in the middle of the war and high level of uh, violence and bombing, to see um, uh, the, the to see the government uh, justifying such a destruction under um, the 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 for for uh, regulation urban regulation uh, purposes. But um, it is interesting to see that this type of uh, raising to the ground also targets uh, illegal neighborhoods. And this is uh, important to keep in mind in order to understand the geography of those um, changes in uh, urban uh, ownership and urban uh, legal status that took place over the over the war, because actually all those informal neighborhoods are valuable urban lands. They are generally connected to the center. Before the war, there were projects of redevelopment of some of those projects, and it, this is one of my take in the book, is to show that there's been a lot of transfer of uh, ownership uh, through uh, the transformation of legal status of this urban land, formerly informal urban land, uh, into a land uh, that can be uh, then um, um, that is transferred to into the hands of the governments and to uh, private actors. Thank you, Leila. I, I mean, building on that point um, and, and shifting to this debate now around the reconstruction, um, I there are many things that I love to ask you about this, but I guess the first and, and most elemental one is because it's also a question that I've thought and come up against, as Michael mentioned, I was doing this book called Reconstruction as Violence, but to what extent should we be using this term reconstruction? You know, what does reconstruction uh, mean in a context where, as you're saying, there's uh, displacement through these uh, projects that are just acts of, of violence and, and destruction as much of anything being actually materially created on the ground? Actually, you know, you've got a good point because I don't like this term of reconstruction, <laughs> which is very much part of the uh, vocabulary and the propaganda of uh, of the Al-Assad regime. You know, after destroying the country, it's uh, it's more than bitter. Um, so, and also reconstruction, you know, so it has all those echoes of post Second World World War reconstruction. So, it um, immediately brings idea of peace. 
So this is also why it's part of mm. a propaganda. Reconstruction usually happens when there is a settled peace, which is not the case uh, in, in, in Syria. And reconstruction also brings idea of, you know, um, so a settled peace and investment um, from many different actors and from the society, you know, you reconstruct for the society, you try to reconstruct a country, something that has been destroyed for the people who live there. So all of these aspects are not actually uh, present in, uh, in this, this is why I call it a regime-led reconstruction. Um, there is no peace, I mentioned that. There is no uh, funding for this uh, reconstruction. I mean, the levels of destruction in Syria are so enormous that it would take the uh, extremely uh, deep commitment and long-term commitment of the international community to bring the funds, the funds to, to rebuild uh, Syria uh, properly. And without um, a genuine peace uh, and settlement, political settlement, um, there is, uh, um, you know, this, uh, this past is not uh, to be foreseeable. Um, reconstruction is also, um, you know, there is in the UN, uh, the UN has worked a lot on um, the transformation of ownership rights, of housing destruction, of loss of property, of dispossession, and they came up with those Pinero principles. I don't know if you heard of that, uh, which is a text that has been produced by the UN uh, in 28 uh, in, in 2008, I think. Um, and the Pinero principles, they explain very clearly um, they, 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 it's tools to sort out issues of uh, property rights and coming back to your country and being part of the reconstruction involving the people. And this is also something that is not seen uh, in, uh, in, um, in Syria. As, as I said, this reconstruction takes the form of, um, um, it, it doesn't exist huh, on the ground. There are a few things that are rebuilt, etc. mostly by people themselves with the money they can get from the remittances from the diaspora. And then there is this regime-led reconstruction that takes the place of new holdings uh, in which the uh, tycoons and uh, the big economic players that actually support the regime uh, have uh, the majority sh shares. Um, and um, there are um, uh, urban redevelopment areas that are set in the main cities uh, and uh, that are managed by those uh, holdings. And therefore, um, um, this reconstruction actually is just a, a word to cover this tool that uh, transfer uh, urban land uh, into the hands of uh, private uh, de developers. So it is, um, there is no reconstruction in the sense, in the, in the genuine sense uh, that uh, I tried to, to spell out. And actually the regime led uh, reconstruction is, as I said briefly at the end of my presentation, a kind of second obliteration uh, of, uh, of uh, what has been destroyed. Um, yeah. Uh, absolutely, it's very much, uh, yeah, the, um, there was even just a, a Guardian report yesterday about uh, new uh, areas being cleared under the banner again of, of reconstruction, so something that is 
very much in process as well. And, you know, just to end, because we're coming up to that half an hour mark, and of course, something else that is also in process at the moment is the uh, Russian invasion of uh, Ukraine and a lot of parallels, of course, being drawn between what the Russians did in Syria um, and what they're doing um, in, in Ukraine, particularly, of course, in reference to the Russian attacks in Mariupol, um, comparable, uh, placed in comparison to uh, Aleppo. Um, I guess, very simply, what, what do you make of that, that comparison? Um, and how much uh, can the, the case of Syria tell us about um, what's happening in Ukraine at the moment? Yeah, of course, you know, it's, uh, it is completely very moving and, and terrible to see what's going on in, in Ukraine in general, but also after seeing what happened in, in Syria, because as you may all know, uh, Russia uh, got involved directly uh, in Syria from uh, September, October 2015. So before that, Russia supported the regime with uh, uh, armament, uh, some financial facilities, and also uh, military advice. Uh, but from uh, September, October 2015, the Russian aviation uh, got directly involved uh, into Syria and into the destruction of, uh, of Syria. And so, you know, I think that um, uh, in Syria, uh, maybe, uh, you know, of course, this is just pure speculation, but as it has been a very successful campaign uh, from the point of view of re Russia, you know, in, mm. in a few years, more than three quarters, uh, two thirds of the country has been uh, retaken, etc. It has been very a very efficient campaign. Um, Russia involved little resources in Syria. It was, you know, the aviation proved to be a very effective and not very costly way to, um, to, 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 to fight and to, to win. And so, you know, may, I, I guess that maybe it has had a, a kind of, um, it, it boosted the, the confidence also of uh, this, the Russian, uh, hierarchy uh, into um, the effectiveness of this kind of campaigns that is to a certain extent replicated in Ukraine. Of course, there is also a ground operation in, in Ukraine, but what we see and what we hear every day is the importance of the uh, air campaign. And the air campaign, it displays um, a lot of similarities to what has been tested in Syria and it seems, you know, um, it's not very original what I'm saying, but it seems quite clear that things that have been tested in, in Syria are replicated in, in, in Ukraine, such as uh, siege, the besiegings of, uh, of cities on which I'm of which I'm talking also in, in my book, the targeting of, uh, of civilian uh, infrastructures and in Aleppo, in Damascus, everywhere, um, uh, civilian infrastructure have been very much uh, targeted. I've got a map of that, but uh, you, know, you can refer to the book. Um, the use also the indiscriminated uh, use of conventional and non-conventional weapons. You know, the, it is uh, even if you use conventional weapons, 
it is not allowed by international humanitarian law to bomb civilian infrastructures and civilians. And we see that uh, Russia, of course, uh, used uh, indiscriminate bombing in Syria, and uh, so, does, so does it again in, in Ukraine, with these tactics of fear um, that has the effect of, uh, of uh, of pushing people out and, and quite rightly slow, so um, in 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 Syria a lot of uh, non-conventional weapons have been used um, in the hands of the regime, but also in the hands of uh, of Russia. So not so much the barrel bombs and the chemical weapons that have been used more by the regime, but uh, some types of bombs um, and uh, that that are forbidden by. Uh, international re re regulations. Um, so yeah, it seems that uh, a lot um, of parallels can can be drawn, and the strategy of targeting the urban environment of uh, frightening people in order to punish them, to also to in the hope of making them, you know. Uh, um, uh, turn around and uh, um, how do you say that you know, to flip them mm. <laughs> I don't know how to say that mm. in English um, and to make them turn against uh, the uh, Ukrainian government um, all those strategies uh, seems to be at play and it is quite likely that you know you can draw a genealogy between the experiments in Chechnya uh, at the end of the 90s beginning of the 2000s and I talked about this in the book I, 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 I drew this genealogy in the book uh, Syria and um, and war tactics uh, that that are at um, displayed in uh, in uh, in Ukraine that infringe all um, rules of engagement, of military engagements that have been agreed uh, internationally. Uh, so, you know, when one talks about war crimes, you know, I'm not a specialist of Ukraine, but, you know, all what we see every day in, uh, in media reports, it all accounts uh, to, to, to war crimes because you do not target uh, civilians and civilian infrastructures um, in, in warfare. Thank you. Dean, so you are finished? Yes, yeah, we're, we're more thank or less on time, I think. Yeah, no, no, that's, that's good. Thank, thank you for those questions and the, um, um, let's raise all sorts of uh, um, issues. And so what we're going to go to now, for the last part of the uh, session of questions, and what I suggest I'll do is, because we have an online audience and uh, people here in person, is I'll alternate between the, uh, the sort of the audience here and those who are online. We've got one question online um, for the moment. I'll just hold that to see first if anybody wants to ask a question in the room here, anybody desperate. When I, when I, um, there's a microphone, which will come over to you. Please wait for the microphone. And please, it'd be helpful if you just say who you are. Thank you. Thank you. My name is uh, Mohammed Ramazan. I'm a PhD student at City University in London. Uh, do you think that Syria could be repelled, reconstructed? And given that Syria has been, uh, Syrian uh, seat has been almost frozen for 10 years since the start of the strike in Syria and the Arab League, for example, 
Do you think that either normalization between uh, Arab states and in specific Gulf states with the Assad regime could help in any other ways uh, in um, the rebuild of Syria? In addition to that, would the Assad regime contribute uh, to the rebuild of Syria in a way of showing um, developments conducted by its government in the country? Thank you. Thank you. Any other question in the room? No? Okay, if not, we'll, we'll take those because there's two questions there anyway. And then we'll go online. Thank you very much for, for your question. Uh, you know, can Syria be, be reconstructed? I, I, you know, I hope that one day Syria will be in a better state as it is. But as I said, the level of destruction and also, you know, not only of the built environment, but of the economic fabric, the fact that there is you know, a large a portion of the population that is outside uh, the, the country. It's a, it's a country that is really broken. So there are different, as I mentioned quickly, there are different ways to reconstruct. And what happens on the ground is that people, when they can, it is the people who are rebuilding their homes, their, you know, locally, when they have access to their homes, because as I mentioned, you know, there are 8 million people outside, but there are still 6 million people displaced within Syria. And so, you know, and, 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 and a lot of um, um, areas where people used to live, where they cannot go back because uh, those areas have been preempted by the, the, the new uh, redevelopment uh, projects uh, led by, by the regime. So um, where to rebuild for those people who actually have lost everything, even if they are they still remain in Syria, and with which means. So of course, remittances are really important and are key to the survival of of the families in, in Syria, but it can help, but it is not enough to rebuild a country that, uh, you know, can um, sustain its population. Um, it needs other things. It needs possibly yes, a government, a government that is dedicated to the rebuilding of uh, the inclusive rebuilding of its country. Um, you know, there is also this fiction to me of the Syrian state. It is a broken state. I mean, I, I don't like the failing state, whatever. So this is not my point. It is a, a state apparatus that does not work anymore. You know, many people are outside. Many people died. As, um, the, even before the war, it was a state that uh, was not very efficient and that was very bad at investing, at spending its money, etc. Um, into, uh, you know, Common good infrastructures, and now you know it's uh, it's uh, it's also a fiction of a state. You know, in terms of daily workings, so there are the um, human resources, the state infrastructures that would be needed to reconstruct genuinely the country is not there. If there were a genuine uh, will from the Assad regime to rebuild, but many signs, you know, there are many signs that are. Um, uh, sent by the by the Assad regime that it is not interested in reconstruction. So those projects, for instance, that are not for the people, um, the fact that the refugees are not welcome back 
you know, so they rebuild for who, et cetera, et cetera. So of course there is a need of for cash. Um, and hence also all this re-engagement of Syria at the original level. You know, then we, we, have, we saw that uh, Jordan and Lebanon signed an agreement with Syria in order to um, uh, be able to deliver electricity, Jordan electricity and uh, Egyptian gas to Lebanon through Syria, whereas before this route was severed because of the war. You, you see that there are economic interests in the region to re-engage with, uh, with Syria. For the uh, Bahrain and uh, the EAU, it also corresponds also to a common kind of fear of Islamist movements, etc. But is that going to be enough? You know, and uh, it seems to me that it's very, you know, I don't know what is going to happen in one year, in two years, in five years, in 10 years. Huh? So I'm not predicting the future, but um, I can't see, you know, uh, for people to invest in Syria, they have to have a certain level of certainty, security uh, to make huge investments. Um, so a part of, uh, you know, limited investments that fits the interest of regional players. Um, I, I don't see it as the beginning of uh, full-scale uh, reconstruction. If there were uh, a genuine peace at some point, you know, then, you know, the international agency uh, and funding bodies could... Uh, could enter the country, but we are we are not there. Uh, so I think the future is a bit uh, light uh, for the immediate future. But um, thank you. I'll take the two online questions and I'll come back to you. Yeah. Thank you, Leila, very much. It's very very interesting. I, mean, I agree with you. Uh, oh, the, the microphone. Sorry. Yeah, yeah. Uh, just on the on reconstruction, it's becoming very very political issue, and it's becoming like a red you know, red line, you're not even allowed to say reconstruction. And I agree that large-scale reconstruction is, you know, given the current reality, is, is not a good idea. It's going to re-cement the corrupt political economy uh, and the regime. But there is also a need for reconstruction with a small letter, you know, on the ground, like uh, the people, life goes on, people are living there, the schools are destroyed, houses are destroyed, irrigation canals are destroyed and they need to be restored. Um, and this helps form, form foremost the people rather than the regime. And it is, I mean, I can tell you from, because I, I, I work with the ground the whole time, I'm doing a current assessment to resilience in Syria. It just gets so ridiculous and funny. Like I came across a school the other day in Wuta where the donors was happy to fund the um, work to restore the first floor because they, they didn't classify as reconstruction. And then the second floor of the same school, they said, no, no, this type of work that is reconstruction. So it's the same school. So they, they interrupted the funding. Um, they funded like a huge project, for example, for the FAO, the Food and Agriculture Organization, to support farmers in uh, Homs, northern countryside of Homs. Uh, and FAO said, well, yeah, you want to support farmers, we need water. Water, you need uh, the canals. So we have to restore the canals. And no, no, that's reconstruction. And then after back and forth, they said, so, okay, fine, you support, you build the canals and the farmers area, the regime have to build its area. And 
and just to negotiate this, they have to speak to the regime and then the whole funding was interrupted. So, and it's all about how the world reconstruction is becoming way too political, such a big taboo. Um, but I just think that it's really important that when we talk about it, to remind people that on the ground, there are people who just need little money to fix the window so they can, you know, they don't freeze or to rebuild the school or a water canal. It's just really important because it's really translating to such nervousness on the political level that a huge amount of funding, much needed support is being uh, just cut out. Thank you. Yeah. There were two online questions also on reconstruction, so we'll just take these together uh, uh, on, on the, uh, the involvement of external actors. Anand Sundar, in your opinion, how can, should Western actors, EU and US, still invested in the conflict, balance the need to help Syrians on the ground, uh, early recovery, without simultaneously normalizing the Assad regime or legitimizing into its reconstruction narrative? So that's the role of Western actors. Secondly, uh, Amanda Johansson, who are the main actors apart from the Assad regime itself in the reconstruction projects ongoing in Syria? Are there foreign actors involved, such as Russia or other states? Yeah, so I'll I, I start with uh, Amanda's uh, question because it's, and then I'll go to uh, both streams and uh, Adnan's uh, remarks and questions. Um, uh, so, yeah, the main actors, you know, then there are, uh, in terms of foreign actors, you know, there is some Iranian investment, there is some Russian investment, but it remains quite small and limited. Um, it's for many different reasons. One of them being that Russia and Iran are also uh, countries that have uh, limited uh, means and that are not necessarily interested in reconstruction, but rather on securing a few interests that are di directly, um, a few projects that are di directly in their interest but are not interested in reconstructing the country. Iran being a bit different because Iran has always been interested also in, in getting access to uh, some infrastructure, urban land, etc. But um, um, yeah, so reconstruction projects are mostly uh, rush, uh, uh, regime led. And here again, I have to maybe to, to, to uh, maybe I was not clear enough, but a part of two, two projects that are ongoing with some buildings built, etc., in Damascus. Actually, most of those projects are non-existent. It's just areas that are frozen under these new uh, legal uh, setups um, and frozen for you know further projects. But none of them are are really uh, taking um, taking shape because there is no funding. Um, so um, mostly, and, and, and no market also, you know, to, to buy uh, uh, the type of housing that, uh, that would take place in, in those areas. You know, um, RIM, and it is also what uh, Anand uh, is uh, pointing to, uh, you're completely right, you know, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's a deadlock. I have, I, I'm sorry, Adnan, I have no solution, otherwise, uh, <laughs> I would be uh, at the. I have no solution, and it's uh, it's uh, it's 
it's um, and I'm not a political in you know I'm not into political making etc. So I cannot come with a device, uh, and you are much more versed into uh, this kind of uh, precise assessment of uh, of uh, of it on on the ground. And um, I, I know that you discuss him with uh, with political uh, makers uh, on on those subjects. It is a it is a real massive terrible problem and it's a way to also to pursue the war you know when I was when I said that uh, obliteration um, uh, is pursued with those regime-led reconstruction project in a way war and the destruction of the country is pursued uh, with this kind of deadlock of uh, how to help people without helping the regime um, yeah, uh, I have no, 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 maybe, you know, you can share with us uh, what, uh, what, you know, could be, could be done, but there is this um, difficulty to engage with a regime that does not want to engage with the international community with no um, um, security, you know, with, uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's also an actor into which it's difficult to, to put one's face <laughs> with regard to mm. the long-term uh, protection of those investments and of the population after after ten years of uh, of uh, bombing it, etc. So it is terrible. But I have no, I don't know how to. And so we see, you know, all those small projects. It's really important that they happen. People need to fix their houses, to work, to develop economic activity, to have a bit of investment, to school their children. Yeah. I agree with you. I don't, I don't know what uh, can be done with um, such a political deadlock uh, in Syria. Thank you. I'm um, sorry not to be more no. creative. Well, but <laughs> difficult, isn't it, yeah. in this context? Um, at the back, Alex, yes? Yeah. Just wait for the microphone. Thank you. Uh, thank you very much. I actually have your book. It's, it's incredibly illuminating uh, and insightful. I, I was wondering if I could ask you a little bit about Idlib and what you foresee the future of the province to be, given that there's still ongoing fighting. Um, and of course, you know, we can talk about the reconstruction of Syria, which is, I guess, in the possession of the Assad regime. But Idlib is slightly different, especially with some displaced people from, from Aleppo and so, so on. So I was just wondering how you foresee the future of, of Idlib. You know, I, of course, I, <laughs> so, you know, I'm, I'm not talking from any kind of uh, special expertise, you know, of the situation precisely in Idlib. And, you know, I cannot foresee the future. <laughs> I'm a social scientist, so, <laughs> but, um, more generally, you know, we still have this fragmentation of the of the country with different uh, with areas that are under the control uh, of different actors Idlib regional area Idlib the Turkish occupied areas the Kurdish um, um, uh, dominated areas etc so the, the, the country is still extremely fragmented 
here again, I'm sorry, I'm going to be uh, disappointing, but I'm also not, uh, you know, a political scientist, etc. Versed into the intricacies of uh, um, the politics of the different groups, etc. But it seems to me that globally, the situation is also in a stalemate, and um, I'm not sure that I, I think that is going possibly in the near future, in the, the years ahead. Then you know we'll see. Remains more and less the same. Yeah, I and we'll see. You know also what's going to happen after Ukraine because one of the big player of. Syria, Russia is maybe going, you know, it's maybe it's going to be transformed by the Ukrainian conflict. So it's another um, dimension of, uh, of the dynamics in Syria that is completely new, you know, what if, uh, what, what Russia is going to, to, to become. But um, I think it's going to remain more and less, you know, I can't see a real change of the situation for the moment in Syria in terms of this kind of settlement of uh, the political divisions and territorial occupations from different groups. Meaning that, uh, you know, in terms of uh, reconstruction, you know, there's the area of Idlib that is heavily destroyed in which there are two million uh, internal displaced people on top of the population. So that who live in very uh, difficult uh, situation. Uh, uh, so they, they are in dire needs also of humanitarian aid and reconstruction, but this is going to be trickled um, you know, it's going to be a small trickle of uh, of help that is going to to help the the Idlib region as well, um, as well as the other areas of the country, and maybe more because it's. I mean, as as we know, it's um, it's kind of a complicated governance of uh, many different uh, armed groups in in Idlib, so uh, they can maybe rely sometimes on. On, on 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 aid that comes from you know one supporter of uh, you say that one of their um, promoters, but yeah no so yeah I think that it's going to be to remain quite uh, you know terrible situation with uh, because it's a stalemate I I see it as a stalemate for a few years but you know then in Syria uh, you know. I'm sorry not to be more, you know, <laughs> telling you exactly what's going to happen, but I, I cannot really. And I, I think we are in a kind of stalemate uh, where the equilibriums are not going to change soon, notwithstanding what's going to happen with Russia. Uh, but um, soon. Yeah, I missed part of your talk. So excuse me if I'm asking about something you already spoke about, but there is a diamond identity element to the maps of destructions, uh, which area were destroyed and the identity of the people who used to live in this area and also to the displacement that happened as a result of this destruction and how also reconfigure the distribution of you know where people from particular ethnic or, or sectarian background live and concentrate or mix or not mix. Is that also something you're looking at and the making and unmaking of this thing? I'm looking at that very much now in my book now. So I'm talking about this 
a bit of the second dimension of the country, but uh, no, I'm not. Um, I'm, uh, I haven't touched upon that. It's a, it's an important and very heavily deba debated uh, aspect of of the war, but uh, it's not in my book now. Mm. Yes, wait, for microphone. <laughs> I have like a really basic question. What was the hardest part of putting your book together? What was the hardest yeah. part? Yeah. Mm. Mm. Uh, oh, <laughs> uh, actually, it's been difficult all, all along. Uh, um, actually, I, I mean, the, I, really, the book, I wrote it in one year. I mean, I had the project for several years, but then when I wrote it, it was it was during one year. Uh, but actually, I started to research the conflict when it started, you know, as a as a Syrian academic, you know, working on Syria. I thought, okay, let's let's try to to see what I can offer as an analytical tools on, on what's going on. And so actually it's been a bit incremental. So, and this book actually reflects a little bit the chronology of the, of the, of the conflict as well as my uh, entry into this subject, you know. So my first papers were on the uprising, the geography of the uprising, the urban dimension, etc. And then, you know, there been these destructions that really started to wipe everything, massive, massive displacement, etc. And um, I was not prepared to work on conflict. It was not my field. I was an urban geographer. And I remember that um, it's really a personal note, but I think that for researchers and young researchers, it's really important to, to be, a, I mean, for me, it has been an interesting ex personal and uh, human experience to see that, you know, it's, uh, it's hard. Um, and uh, I've been, uh, when I was, uh, I spent two years at the Refugee Studies Center at Oxford. Uh, and uh, there, uh, this is where I, I got aware of, because they had special programs of that, of sec secondary trauma, you know, that working on the materials that is so awful can affect you. I mean, I'm not comparing myself to people who are actually suffering on the ground, but so this is, um, and, and it, it drove me to a whole reflection on, you know, so the fact that it's a material that is not easy to deal with. Also a more reflexive um, take on what is it to research on war and to research with refugees, because very quickly, uh, as I said, one of my sources, uh, main sources was working, discussing, talking, living with uh, Syrian refugees in, in, in Lebanon, especially. And um, so, you know, of course, in academia, in ethics, etc., we have developed a full uh, range of um, guidelines and reflection. But this was really uh, important to uh, be able to reach out for um, this kind of uh, reflexivity and to develop my own reflexivity on my practice on my practice. Uh, working with people who were in real uh, difficulties and who suffered directly a trauma. Um, so this was possibly, you know, the most difficult bit to, 
I just, as a researcher, you know, in the end, I'm writing a book, I'm writing articles. Actually, I'm, my, I'm, I'm pushing forward my career. Um, then I go back home in my university with my European passport. And, you know, so it's, um, there is such an imbalance and asymmetry uh, with regard to the people who actually provided me with uh, the main sources of my work. So all of this, have been difficult, but also extremely uh, interesting to, to try to, to, to think through that and also to share. You know, I, I know that in uh, UK universities, it's very important, but in France as well, you know, uh, discussing, sharing in methodological, methodological seminars, etc. What What do we do when we do research in any type of environment? but also in environments uh, involving vulnerable people. Um, so yeah, I think this has been the, 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 the most difficult and but also interesting part of, uh, of this work. Good, I, I, I'm looking at the time we just finished. It could be a very short question. Is that okay? Yeah, just squeeze it in. Just wait for the microphone, please. It's a very short question, but as an Arab, I'm always interested in knowing the perception of um, what drew you to like Syria and studying Syria, because I find it to be like quite a sensitive topic when an, a European perspective is drawn in. Also, I'm assuming you don't speak Arabic, you might speak Arabic, but wouldn't that be a great hindrance in communicating with like primary sources on the field? So I do speak Arabic and I've been living in, in the Middle East since uh, the 90s. Yeah. I'm quite old. <laughs> <laughs> so I started in Egypt and uh, I worked then in, in Syria and Lebanon much before the, the war, as I said, since the mid uh, 90s and in other places also in the Middle East. Uh, you, you com I completely agree with you that there is something about, you know, uh, foreign researchers working in other countries, um, especially then in a north-south kind of asymmetry in terms of, you know, as I said, especially in authoritarian um, uh, countries, you know, where, where, you know, the issue of liberty, freedom, freedom of moving, etc. Economic imbalances. Also, you know, I've been, I worked a little bit in Dubai as well, and I can tell you that the economic imbalances were a bit reversed, and that in Lebanon, I also interviewed, or in Syria, people that were extremely rich. So, you know, the, the asymmetry doesn't play out uh, all the time. Um, um, but yes, there is, um, it is something, you know, that is part also of. Uh, the reflexivities that one owes uh, to one's own research and to the research community to reflect on those positions. Um, and uh, I'm talking of, of it a little bit in this book and I've published papers also, and uh, it is an issue that uh, I, I also address in, in seminars with uh, my students, etc. Yeah. Okay, there, there we shall end. Um, so many, so many sort of issues and questions raised around understanding of, of Syria in terms of these, these wider theoretical and methodological questions, which are in our minds uh, in, in research in in the region. 
Um, but just to thank you, um, above all, of course, thank you to, to Leila for a, a wonderfully insightful uh, presentation. Thank you to Dee, if you're still there, Dee. Yes, you're still there. I can see you behind me. Thank you, for serving as, as a, 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 a great discussant. And uh, thank you, Nadine, as always, for the wonderful organisation. And thank you, the audience, both the virtual audience and the audience here in the room. So please join me um, in thanking our speaker and discussant. Thank you.